Turn with me to John chapter 2 if you have your Bibles. Uh, I'm going to do a message tonight that I'm really excited about, and it's, I'm calling it this, The World and the Dance. The World and the Dance. Uh, I think probably the reason is because I am, I'm just, I'm just recovering from wedding fever, there's so many uh, weddings that just happened. Uh, oh, by the way, should we say that we have uh, Bryce and Ariana and Isaac and Kiersey all back from their honeymoons? We love you guys. You all look tan um, and tired, so life is good. Uh, really, really. But I'm, we're just coming out of wedding season. I did a flurry of these weddings. I love weddings. I, I don't know about you. I really, really do. I know they're kind of like long sometimes, and the time between the ceremony and the eating can feel really long. But I do love weddings, and there's something about weddings, at least to me, that um, kind of gets me excited. I just see all these great young couples, like right on the verge of new marriages, all of these married people in the room. They don't know what joy they're about to experience and what troubles they are about to endure as a married couple. It's really pretty exciting. Uh, but usually, more times than not, when I go to a wedding, I'm the minister. And so it's kind of a little bit different because I think people are expecting me to be probably the most serious, somber, holy, um, devout, set-apart person in the entire um, ceremony. I just don't feel like I'm that guy at all. So I'm a, I know I'm an unusual minister because I want to I want to be celebrating along with everyone else. First, I feel like the stigma is the minister is supposed to be this real serious kind of guy. But really, I, 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 that's not how I see the ministry, and that's not how I think in a lot of ways. It's not how I see God, especially through, uh, through Jesus. And, I, and so just as we were going through all of this like wedding season, I was just kind of reminded, and it, it just struck me again about what, what an advocate Jesus is for joy and um, celebration, I guess. So John chapter two, we're going to read 11 verses. This is a great, I just love this story. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys know it, but this is where Jesus changes water into wine. So we're going to go John chapter two, verses one through 11. It says this, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Uh, Jesus's mother was there uh, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Verse three, when the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to them, they have no more wine. Verse four, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, chill, Jesus, jeez. My hour has not yet come. Uh, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Uh, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, look at this, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants knew uh, the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And finally, verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. I love that story. And 
For me, I'm, in my own Christian life, I am working to liberate Jesus from re, like a religious category because that's how we marginalize him. You know, like we, we tend to just think of Jesus as kind of this religious trinket that we would put in our pocket and we would pull it out whenever it's time to have a religious conversation. I can't be the only one, right? Where, where it's just like, someone would ask you a question and you're not sure whether this is the conversation where you're supposed to say something Jesus-y or you're supposed to just say something regular, you know, but we, but we end up just having this very distinct religious life and Christian life. And we just treat Jesus, as long as Jesus can stay in the religious category, then we can do what we want with the rest of our life. And so if you're, if you're serious about living the Christian faith, and by that, I mean serious about following after Jesus, I would say that there's two main ways that that could be accomplished. Number one would be this, to allow and invite Jesus into every part of your life right, where everything in your life, no matter how sacred, becomes open uh, to Jesus coming and correcting. So he would come and he would affect how you live your life in relationships, how you handle yourself at your job. Uh, He would affect your politics, right? He would affect uh, how you handle yourself on the highway. He would affect everything, all the everyday ordinary things, Jesus would have free access to them. That would be one way to do it. The other way would be this, is to try to take all of your life and cram it into a religious category, right? We just make everything in your life religious. This is the world of Christian trinkets and knickknacks and too many trips to Hobby Lobby for more scripture-based items, right? Where, where what you essentially need to do is just, if you can make, you know, because Jesus only exists in this tiny part of your life. And so what you need to do is you need to try to put as much other stuff in the religious world as you can. So this is where it's like any opportunity to say something super Christianese, you're going to take him up on it. And I would say this, that, that the first one, which is, which is inviting Jesus into every part of your everyday life, that produces authentic Christian followers but trying to cram everything into a religious category in your life ends up producing religious fanatics and world-denying separatists. Uh, in, fact, in fact, when you look at this story of Jesus turning water into wine in Cana, it really goes against this idea of keeping everything in your life religious. Right, just briefly, the story, we just read it, but the story is this, is that, is that this all happens in Cana, by the way. I've got a picture. Cana is this small village. It's just a few miles east of Nazareth. And so this, this orange line, that's probably how Jesus and his disciples went to the wedding. Uh, the, the green line there, this is great on the uh, audio podcast, by the way. They love it when I describe stuff where they can't see the green line is probably how uh, Jesus' family came to the trip. But it's a, but it's a day trip uh, to, this, to this small village, which is Cana. And there's a wedding happening. And so the weddings are a big deal. This is not like weddings today. I mean, this is a huge, oftentimes multi-day feast, right? It's not like today where you just have like some cake and some weird punch and you go home. Like this is something where they have a quick ceremony and then sometimes they, they would celebrate and they would feast for multiple days on end. And so somehow Jesus is invited to the wedding. It's a small town. And so we assume that he's grown up in this region. And so he probably knows the people. His mom is invited. Numerous of his disciples are invited. And so they're there. And I, I like to think that if, if history would repeat itself, there's probably some dancing at the wedding. Here's an interesting question. Did Jesus dance? 
I like to think so. It's not, it's not, it's not hip hop, Jen. It would be something much more, uh, something much more Jewish. <laughs> much more Jewish. If you've ever seen Jewish people dance, it might be something more like that. Uh, but I like to think that Jesus danced, and immediately, like, religious people probably don't like that idea, right? Because it's not serious enough, right? They would rather Jesus be there at the wedding, like, disgusted, saying, like, what are you doing? Go home and read your Bibles. But, but Jesus is there, and, at, and at, essentially, at some point, they run out of wine, which is embarrassing. But you got to admit, it's, like, not the end of the world, Right, like okay, he drank. I was just like, "Nope, right of wine." So, like, oh my God, we need a miracle. It's just like a yep, right of wine, but we had we had plenty. But uh, but they're thinking, now this is an opportunity for a miracle here. And so Jesus' mom comes up to him, Mother Mary, and says, "This, hey Jesus, we are uh, we are we're out of wine." And Jesus says, it's not quite as mean in the Greek. It doesn't translate well to English, but he essentially says, woman, what does that have to do with me? It's not my time yet. Mother Mary, she's not offended. She just says uh, to the servants, eh, do, whatever, do whatever he wants. So he goes and he gets, there's, these, there's these, uh, these stone pots, right? And they're 20 to 30 gallons in size, which is like pretty much beyond the level of one person being able to carry it, right? I mean, that's massive, and there's six of them. And these are for, uh, these are, these are for cer- Jewish ceremony. They're for, fil- for filling the mikvahs, which are the baptistries. You can still go to Israel, and you can still see there's these mikvahs. I've got a picture. You can still go and see, uh, see these things. There's all these, uh, these baptistries. But the point is, is that these were, these were sacred items, Right? It's not just like these were decorative pots. These were sacred, consecrated items for only to be used with um, filling, filling with holy water to, to baptize people. And so basically he says, fill those up with water, fill these giant, these giant vases up with water. And at some point, we don't know when, the water turns to wine and the wedding coordinator takes a drink and says like, wow, I, I, I don't mean to say anything, but usually the people would save, you know, the, the, they would do the cheap wine best or the, the best wine first. Uh, and then once everyone's kind of drunk, then you can bring out the cheap wine. No, I don't know the difference, but you guys, you guys saved the best for last. Bravo. See, it's funny because he doesn't realize that like, he doesn't know where the, the, the wine came from. He just thinks they, they found some wine, like, uh, like just found it like 180 gallons worth of wine. They just found how long do you think the party is? 180 gallons of wine. That's the math. It's not just like he made another pitcher. He made 180 gallons of wine. I think that's pretty amazing. And so then that's the miracle. That's the first miracle ever recorded in the life and ministry of Jesus. And I find, I find the story, of course, kind of funny, uh, but I also kind, kind of find it, um, I guess it's a dumb word, but I find it very heartwarming. I find it like sincere, um, and I, I, just, I just think it's sweet in a way. And I think one of the reasons is because it's really like surprising. It's mysterious why Jesus would choose to do this for his first miracle. And a lot of people would say, serious people would say, well, there's a lot of symbolism happening here where at one point uh, God has divorced Israel and so now he's celebrating his new bride, the bride of Christ, which is the church. And that's probably true. Like that's probably, that's probably in there. 
I, but I much rather, I, I prefer just taking the story for what it is, which is Jesus, he goes to a wedding and they run out of wine and then Jesus takes these religious items and turns water into wine. I just think that's like, I don't know. I, I, just, I just think maybe you should sit there and let that inform the way that you see, think about Jesus. The Gospel of John, of course, which is where we just read, it's, it's a really unique book because there's four Gospels. Y'all know them, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called something. Can anybody tell me? The Synoptic Gospels. Leave it up to the paid pastor in the back. <laughs> it's the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Does anyone know why it's called that? Because they're all pretty much the same. I mean, they're different lengths, but I mean, they have pretty much the same timeline. And so if you're wanting to get something like a timeline, chronology, you're wanting to go to Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John is a very different kind of book in that it's, he's not concerned with like technical details. It's an artistic telling. It's a, it's a theological telling. And so, so you can see here is that, that, for example, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make it very clear that Jesus cleanses the temple. Remember when he makes the whip, he cleanses the temple. He does that uh, the day after Palm Sunday, right? So this is part of Holy Week. So it's Holy Monday, right? This is when, this is when Jesus clears out the temple. Uh, this, is, this is one of the things that kind of puts him on a collision course with the Pharisees on the last week of his life. But the Gospel of John is very different. In fact, there's just, you could say it like this, the Gospel of John is comprised in seven different snapshots. Just briefly, in the Gospel of John, it's seven different snapshots, all comprised, all centered around these seven big miracles. And this is the first one. And so you can see what, what's cool is, is, is the John, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, he connects the wedding in Cana with cleansing of the temple. One of the things that happens at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry is right next to this thing that happens at the very end of Jesus' ministry. And what he's doing is he's, he's making a contrast, right? He's, because at one, at one moment, Jesus is celebrating, making more wine. And another one, he's furious, right? And he makes a whip. So you could say it like this. In John chapter two, Jesus makes two things. A, a, he makes wine and a whip in John chapter two. So Jesus makes wine to encourage human celebration and he makes a whip to condemn religious exploitation. I know that's a lot. Think about it. Jesus makes wine to encourage human celebration, and in the same chapter, he makes a whip to condemn religious exploitation. A lot of people wish that this was kind of backwards, right? People wish that Jesus would have made a whip at the wedding, right, to drive out all the drunkards. He's like, all you wicked people, you know, like angry there, but then he would go to the temple and he would celebrate there, but it's actually the exact, it's the exact opposite. Has anyone ever read the book? Uh, this reminds me, has anyone ever read the book? Or I'll accept watching the movie, The Grapes of Wrath. It's uh, by John Steinbeck. It's one of the great American novels. It's essentially about these uh, Depression-era migrant workers. Their name is the Jodes. It's this family. And they, uh, they live in these migrant camps, right? And so they're in these camps. And boy, these guys, they don't have much. They don't have hardly anything. But the one thing that they do have is they have the Saturday night square dance. And boy, they love the Saturday night square dance. 
But there's a certain group of people in the migrant camp. Uh, they're, they're the born-again, world-denying Pentecostals. The book calls them the Jesus lovers. And the Jesus lovers do not care for the Saturday night square dance. In fact, they, they condemn the square dance. They do not attend the square dance. They make everyone else guilty for going to the square dance. And a pastor that I really like, Brian Zond, who I talk about all the time, he uh, wrote an essay where he was talking about the wedding in Cana and, and um, this idea on the grapes of wrath and the Jesus lovers. And it was just so good that I wanted to read you the whole thing, but it was very long, so I've just got like three paragraphs, but I guarantee you it's worth it. This guy is straight up saucy, so be warned. Here we go, but it's just, and the writing is so good. Are you ready? Okay, and in the distance, the Jesus lovers sat with hard condemning faces and watched the sin. It's a line from the Grapes of Wrath. This is how John Steinbeck depicts the world-denying Pentecostals in the Grapes of Wrath as self-righteous, self-appointed morality police who take perverse pleasure in condemning the Saturday night square dance in the California migrant camp. Great writing. Steinbeck's terse betrayal of the Jesus lovers is unflattering, but not an unfair invention of fiction. Unfortunately, such people do exist, and in their existence, they horribly distort the good news of Jesus Christ. Question, do Steinbeck's Jesus lovers who sit in judgment of the Saturday night square dance with their hard condemning faces really love the Jesus who, whose first miracle was to turn water into wine and keep the dance going? Do they love that Jesus? Or they have they invented another one? Jesus seems to be pro-dance. Great line. <laughs> that is, Jesus endorses and participates in the celebration of humanness. But does joining the dance of humanness have dangers? In some ways, yes. At times, the line between the Babylon condemned by God and the Cana blessed by God is hard to distinguish. But to live as a world-denying, angry, judgmental separatist is such a betrayal of the logos, pathos, and ethos of Jesus as not to be an option. We must join the dance. As those who believe that God loves the world and is saving the world in Christ, we must joyfully belong to human society. We must join the dance. The church must creatively participate in the arts, music, poetry, literature, film, theater, athletics, education, entertainment, law, governance, business, finance, commerce, conservation, medicine, journalism, labor, science, research, philosophy, theology, and all that is necessary to produce a healthy, flourishing human society. Listen to this. We can't sit with the pinched-faced world deniers secretly hoping the worst will befall all those who dare to truly enjoy life. We cannot present the face of Christ to a broken world with an angry scowl. An honest reading of the Gospels makes it clear that the only sin that regularly aroused Jesus' anger was the sin of self-righteous religiosity. Was that good? Whew! Try reading a whole book of that. It's exhausting. <laughs> okay, so here, here's, what I, here's what I'm trying to say. That there is a world, right? This idea of the world. There is a world that is supposed to be denied and rejected. That's the world of idolatry and injustice. But there's also a world that's supposed to be affirmed and celebrated by the Christian. And that's the world of, uh, of flourishing human society. 
And I would say this, that the integrity of the church hangs on us being able to uh, affirm the right version of the world and reject the wrong one. In fact, the, the word world that's used here over and over in John, he's always talking about the world. It's this, it's this Greek word, cosmos, C-O-S-M-O-S. It's where we get the word, any guesses? Cosmos, <laughs> yeah, exact same spelling. It's world. And what's amazing is that John uses the word cosmos both positively and negatively. It's interesting. So it's like, it's like he's saying that there's a world that we're supposed to love and there's also a world that we're supposed to not love. Two examples, look at what John would say in John chapter three, verse 16. You may be familiar. For God so loved the world, cosmos. He loved the cosmos. Then listen to what he says in 1 John chapter two, verse 15 and 16. Do not love the world, cosmos, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world, cosmos. So you might be thinking, well, John, I mean, far be it for me to criticize you, but if you could make up your mind, that'd be great for me. Uh, you're just going to have to come to grips with the, with the idea that he uses the same word to mean different things, right? There is a world to be embraced and participated in, and at the same time, there is a world to be denied and rejected, and you have to know the difference, and it's super, super important. What I want to uh, communicate, hopefully, is, is just the idea of human society is ultimately God's idea, right? You think like that humans would live together and we would celebrate and we would love each other and we would have culture and we would have happiness and we would come together and we would dance and we would get married and we would have fun. Like that that's all God's idea. But at the same time, knowing that there is a world that's built on lust, this is the world of empire and exploitation and power and oppression and using people. The Bible has a word for this particular kind of world. It refers to it as Babylon. And it's very clear that we, that's something that we as Christians are to reject. But just the idea of thinking like, man, the world, that's the worst. Like, let's go and do our own thing. It's not an option for a Christian, right? Like we are people who are called to participate in the world, and be active in the world and to celebrate and enjoy the life that God has given us. Anyone seen um, the documentary Wild Wild Country? No? Oh my gosh. Okay, well, I'm going to sell it for 15 seconds. Uh, a few of you. I wasn't clear on whether you raise your hand or what. Yeah, that was my bad. Maybe you've all seen it. So it's on Netflix, Wild Wild Country. It's about, prop- most people would consider it a cult that formed in uh, Oregon, around Bhagwan Rajneesh. It's very interesting. But these people, they like didn't want to be part of culture. They just wanted to go and love each other and have sex and just meditate and be weird hippies, right? And they didn't want any part in the world. They wanted to create their own community. Watch the documentary to find out if that works. But (laughs) the point is that that's not the way of the Christian, right? The Christian is someone who actively participates in the world. And the idea of just saying like, man, I just don't want to participate in anything that's happening in the world. I just think it's, it is a betrayal of the Jesus who would turn water to wine. And I just, I just find it significant that that this is his first miracle. Don't you think that's odd? It's not like he, he was going around freely, you know, transforming liquids 
like his whole life. Like this is the first time that he did anything miraculous. It's not like he was just a, a kid and Mary was like, we're out of milk. And Jesus was like, no problem, <laughs> let there be milk. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't that. This was the first time. This is the first time that he does anything miraculous. I think it's amazing. He, what he doesn't do is, is he's not raising some, someone from the dead. He's not healing a leper. He's not, he's not doing anything. He's, he's not doing something necessary, right? He's doing something optional for the sake of celebration. It's, it's, just, it's not necessary to turn water into wine when people have clearly already had plenty, right? But, but really, I think in a lot of ways, it kind of sets the tone for Jesus's ministry where over and over and over, what he's doing is he's inviting people into the celebration that is the kingdom of God. One more scripture. Don't worry, I'm not going to go a lot longer. One more scripture. I want to turn to uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 31, if you've got your Bibles. Way to go, Miss Jen. All right. I stick too many things in my Bible, and so then the pages, like, don't go right. Okay. Luke 7, uh, verse 31. Then Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting. Oh, and let me just say this. I never understood this scripture. I always read it, and I was like, what? And now, now that I understand it, it's amazing. He's talking, uh, he's kind of responding to the Pharisees. I'm gonna start over. Uh, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. Verse 33, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. Verse 34, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. Isn't that an interesting scripture? So uh, yeah, again, I never understood it, so let me try to explain it here. So let's say I've got a daughter named Grace, that part's true. So when you have these kids and they're playing, like, like imagine we've got like three five-year-olds over in the corner and they're all playing. Well, that would require a lot of imagination, right? In order to play, you have to be willing to um, play along. And Jesus is saying essentially like, and the Pharisees, they won't play. They're like not playing along. He says, he says like, we played a wedding song and you won't dance. And he says, a dirge, it was a funeral song. He says, we played a wedding song, you won't dance. We played a funeral song and you won't cry, Basically, he's saying, like, you guys, are, you guys are boring. You just, like, can't play with people like that. Um, and that's what world-denying religion does, right? And this was the criticism that he's responding to, is that the Pharisees, they looked at John the Baptist. You could call him the weeper, right? Uh, so he's the weeper. He represents, he represents sorrow, right? The, like the, the quote-unquote negative emotions. And he comes and he lives in the desert and he eats bugs. So he's not eating, he's not drinking wine. And they look to him and say, man, that guy's demon-possessed. And then Jesus comes and he both eats and drinks and he's with sinners. And they say, well, he's a glutton and a drunkard. And they said, they're just saying, man, this, no, no making you guys happy right? Either we're, we're too serious and you think we're demon-possessed or too fun and you say we're gluttons, right? And of course, of course they were wrong on both sides, right? But, what, but both, what both John the Baptist and Jesus had is they had depth of feeling, 
right? They were able to participate in the reality of living a full range of human life, right? Like, like human life is, is happy and sad and joyful and terrible, right? All mixed into one. And, and Jesus and John the Baptist, even though they were from very different sides of that spectrum, right? John the Baptist with his deep sorrow in a lot of ways and, and Jesus with his great joy, even though they both experienced both, they were both able to experience the participating in humanity, right? But, but the Pharisees, like that's, that's not what they wanted. They were trying everything they could to not be humans, right? They wanted to be anything other than a human being. Remember, even the Pharisee prays at one point, right? God, thank you that I am not like these other people. In fact, that's what Pharisee means. It, it, if Pharisee means separatist, right? That they bragged, they loved being completely separate from human uh, society. And I, I'm almost done, but, but let me just say this. I get the appeal of separatism, and it's this. It's that it's simple, right? That if you can just, if you can just say, I'm just going to reject everything, right? Like I don't do this and this and this and this and this, then I'll be good, right? Then, then God will be happy with me. And when in doubt, maybe I don't know, when in doubt, yes or no, no, right? Like always just default, you say no to everything that takes place in this wicked and corrupt world. Like I get, I get it, but, but it's just not the way of Jesus, right? You could say it like this. This is what if you're taking notes, write this down. Love is a kind of dance, right? You think about, I'm not a good dancer. Anyone who's ever danced with me can tell you that. <laughs> uh, but I can tell you this, is that dancing requires, uh, it requires grace, right? It requires rhythm. And that word grace means lots of different things in lots of different contexts in the Bible and Christianity. Of course, it means lots of different things. But if you think just in a natural, on the surface level, grace oftentimes means just this ability to move smoothly, right? Like that dancer has a lot of grace or that ice skater has a lot of grace. And I just think Jesus was, Jesus was graceful, right? Like, like he, he, he was able to move in this delicate balance of being, he, he, he wasn't led astray by the world, but no, nor was he a separatist from the world, right? He was able to, to live in both of these places. Jesus moves in and out among sinners and even welcomes them to his own table. But at the same time, he's not like, you know, contaminated or whatever. And that's not easy, right? And that's something that requires... Uh, God's help. But, but the point is, I, I just think that we, especially now as, as the world continues to change, and you guys probably are familiar with the idea of Christians just involving themselves in the culture war, just being, staying in our room and just screaming louder and louder and louder about all the things that are happening on the outside. And it's just like, we think, we think that that's somehow doing something uh, but really, I, I believe that we're called to participate. We're not called to be contaminate, contaminated by the world, but we are called to take part. And again, that requires grace. Steve Parsons, he's a, a cool musician. Uh, he says this, I've got it for you on the screens. It's a Christian guy. He says this, I grew up in a religious movement that taught us to point the finger at the world around us, accusing people of being sinful. I'm not sure why we thought that would be helpful. <laughs> yeah, we were taught to lock the doors, batten down the hatches, and stay as far away from the world as possible. We thought we were becoming holy when in fact we were becoming irrelevant. 
I don't want to be a part of a religious movement that points a dying finger. Rather, I choose to be a part of the life-giving movement that reaches out with hands of love. Here's my closing statement, and then we'll receive communion. If you believe in the Bible, one of the places you will find Jesus is in the celebration of humanity. So we go to the wedding. We belong to the human race. We join Jesus in the dance because that's where Jesus turns the water into wine and people see him and believe. No, we will not be sucked into the false world of idolatry, immorality, and injustice. That's what the instructions of Jesus are there to do, to form us. But listen to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. God, help us to learn that dance. We commit to be involved in the conversation, but as salt and light, bringing the grace of Jesus into our interaction with humanity. Okay, so we're gonna receive communion. Can I get a chair up here with some? One of you guys get me one? You guys are wonderful. Anybody, you guys are all great. Josh, he does it all. Um, communion, if, if you're not familiar, communion is, <laughs> this is gonna be so low, huh? It's funny. Okay, there we go. Uh, communion is, is what's known as a sacrament in the Christian faith. It means that we do it, is this slowly sinking? Give me a second, I'll be back on the ground. Uh, so sacrament is, it's, it's what we do and it, it means that it, it symbolizes, we do it to remember something. And that's the idea of communion is that we come and what we do is we remember the fact that each and every one of us is invited to the table of Jesus. And this isn't, a, this isn't an earn it thing. This is just a simply a, a gift thing. It's called grace. If it was, if you earned it, then it wouldn't be grace. That's the idea, right? So everything about communion is just remembering nothing about you, nothing about your faithfulness or faithlessness, whatever the case may be. It's simply about remembering his faithfulness um, and the fact that you're invited to the table. I think it's amazing in, in this story that, that only the servants of Jesus, get this, knew that it was him that did the miracle, right? Everyone else just thought, more wine, <laughs> great. Even the wedding coordinator, right, has no idea about it. But, that, but that's, part of the, that's part of the job of the follower of Jesus Christ is to recognize Jesus in the blessing. See what I'm saying? That like everyone else is like, well, that's just kind of like a nice day or whatever. But the follower of, of Jesus recognizes that there, there is maybe a miracle behind the things that seem to us really ordinary. And so, so for us, even just this simple act of eating a piece of bread and drinking a tiny little cup, the smallest cup in the world of juice, that it seems like that there's nothing more ordinary in the world than eating. Like we all, we all know about that but that we're able to, to, to see past the act and to see the miracle um, behind it. You know, this past, um, this past week I did, this past Friday, I guess, I did a, a funeral for a, a sweet lady, Juanita, and she had lived a wonderful life. And so I, I knew her son, but I didn't know the rest of the family. And so I was able to go, and so I didn't meet any of the other family the, the daughter and the husband, husband of 68 years. It's really cool. So um, I was able to help, you know, I acted as one of the pallbearers too. So went there, just had a, a few words to say and we prayed. Um, but it's, it's weird. I, funerals are weird. <laughs> funerals are weird um, because I end up feeling a lot of different 
emotions, right? Because on one hand, you feel like it's, it's sad, right? And just, just this sense of ending can, can feel really overwhelming, you know? Like you, you, you don't think your marriage is ever going to be over, you know? And, and so it's sad, you know? But it's also kind of happy and it makes you celebrate and remember like what a life uh, looks like and what a life lived well looks like, you know, and I always leave a a funeral just determined to be a better husband and a better father. But I just, sometimes I think about situations like that and and maybe in a week I end up doing a wedding and a funeral and then I experience this whole range of different emotions, you know, and and that's just kind of what life is, right? Is that there's, there's, if, if you're, if you're awake to it, life is really pretty wonderful, and it's also pretty, pretty terrible sometimes. I mean, if there's some people in the room, I know I'm looking at some young faces. Some of you guys are young enough to where you haven't really experienced it all hitting the fan yet. <laughs> so you don't know, but, but life can be really kind of tough sometimes too. And it can just take your breath away uh, on both sides of the spectrum. But just that is what life is. And so that's the idea of the message is that, that Jesus was... Jesus didn't come to make us just like feel less and to live less life. You know, in fact, he he comes to help us live a full life and a full life has all sorts of different things. But, but if you use, if you use your following after Jesus Christ as a reason to excuse yourself from your own life, it's just a real big bummer. So don't do that. Right. So, so when there's a wedding, be there. And when it's an opportunity to dance, I don't know if you like to dance, do it, right? But don't, but don't become so pious in, in your Christian faith that you lose all color, right? I know I'm not much of a dancer. Uh, no, no, you don't have to dance, but whatever that would be for you. <laughs> um, and so, so as they pass communion, just hold on to the elements. If you don't know how we do it here, just take one of each. Everyone is invited to do this and hold on to them. And then we'll, um, receive communion together. But what I would like for you to do, if you're willing, is this, is just to, to consider this idea of Jesus, who the very first thing that he does in his, in his ministry is he turns water into wine to keep human celebration going. It's an amazing idea. And, and, and maybe even think about what, what parts of your life um, would you be open to God coming in and, and reviving, you know what I mean? Maybe, maybe for you, life has gotten so serious uh, that it's hard for you to celebrate or maybe, maybe for you, you, you avoid pain or whatever it would be, but just, just inviting God into, into this part of you, which is like this emotional experience of how you relate to life. So just let God speak to that if you'd be willing and then we'll receive communion together in a minute. God bless you guys.
is on the screen. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. So come to the table. Allow me to pray for you. Jesus Christ, uh, tonight we, as we come to your table, we just choose to remember and see the beautiful life that you lived. Man, just a short time on the planet, really. But even in your three-year-long ministry, you showed us exactly how we're to live. And you really took part in life. You were awake so we want to be awake. So we ask that you would help us uh, in these coming days and weeks and months to, to have the courage to enter into life, enter into the life you've given us and to celebrate and to laugh um, and to not excuse ourselves, uh, but instead to, to follow after you in taking part in the beautiful gift that you've given each and every one of us, which is uh, our own lives. And so we say thank you. And as we come to your table, we, we remember and we recognize just your incredible patience and your incredible kindness to each and every one of us. Reserving a seat for, for us, even, even in the long times that for some of us we've been away. And so we come here and, and we see you and we remember the fact that, that it's you who made any of this possible. It's only because of you and your grace and your love and your mercy that we can even be here. And so we say thank you. And so, uh, Jesus, we, we remember your death and we proclaim your resurrection and we await your return. We remember your death and we proclaim your resurrection and we await your return. So let's eat the bread and drink from the cup together. <clears throat> 